Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Robert, you and I both grew up in the 80s. How worried were you about nuclear annihilation as a kid? Because I was terrified of it. It was like constantly being talked about on the news or in popular culture. It's an interesting question because, you know, I look back on it and I remember, I, I, I think back on, on on threats that were present in the media or in the conversations of adults and how they influenced me. Like I remember, I remember going to church and being uh, and hearing about the, the the coming battle of Armageddon, yeah, and how everyone's going to have to fight on one side or the other. I remember being concerned about that. Uh, I remember picking up on some of the um, the the AIDS uh, scare material and thinking like, oh, how does this affect me? Yeah, uh, how does this a- affect the people I care about? I don't remember being feeling like the the anxiety of nuclear war so much, and I, I maybe I was just. You know, part of this, part of this was a, a time when I was uh, was living outside of the U.S. I was in Canada. And we only had the one TV TV channel. Oh, okay. So yeah. that might have played a role, or maybe I was just you know removed enough from the or distracted enough from the the, the nightly uh, uh, you know TV news that it didn't affect me. Or maybe it's a, I mean we're about the same age though, so I don't know how to, to what ex- extent that played into it. But in the past, I've kind of wondered. Well, maybe I was just a little too young. Like uh, I didn't yeah. to uh, yeah. to to use the language of Queen. I didn't quite grow up in the shadow of the mushroom. Cloud, you know, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also, you know, moved around overseas a little bit, too. So that could have contributed to it in different ways as Mm -hmm. well. But I definitely remember the 80s being like scary. And then like, you know, maybe it was also just because of my age. But then in the 90s, it was like, oh, things are okay now. Yeah. There's not as much of a threat. We can all breathe easy. We're not going to have to like we don't have to do the whole stop, drop and roll thing in the classrooms. Right. I definitely looking back, I definitely see that trend where there was the the 90s. There was this feeling of, yeah, this is not that big of a threat anymore. Maybe it's even not a threat. Don't worry about it. Just do your thing. But I've always been a fan of stuff from the 80s and the late 70s, from uh, you know the the fiction, the music, uh, some of the literature, and you certainly see nuclear anxiety displayed in in that in in various ways. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got uh, of course Terminator 2: Judgment Day. I mean, they are of course talking about an artificial intelligence bringing about the apocalypse, but it's through nuclear warfare. Yeah. Uh, and then the big one that I always think of is Watchmen, especially when I think of what we're going to talk about today, which is the Doomsday Clock. Now, uh, I don't believe this was featured in the movie version of Watchmen, but in the comic book version, every issue began with the Doomsday Clock. Oh, and yeah, I kind of forgot about blood that. dripping down the page further and further. And as you got to the 12th issue, I think the blood was covering the clock like all the way or something like huh. that. But the idea was that the reason why these events were happening in the story is because we were inching closer to midnight on the doomsday clock. Huh? Yeah. I, you know, maybe when I first read Watchmen, I wasn't, for some reason, I never really put one and two together on the doomsday clock, but there you go. Yeah. I, I believe that there's like a kind of, um, synchronicity of the metaphor there with Dr. Manhattan mm-hmm. being connected to atomic energy 
He's also a watchmaker mm-hmm. and he's obsessed with time and taking apart clocks and putting them back together again. And then the background metaphor of the doomsday clock. Huh. Now here's the thing. I didn't know the doomsday clock was a real thing until I was an adult. And actually just recently it was updated. Now we shared this on our social media for stuff to blow your mind. And there was a lot of comments about it. Uh, it's so much so that we thought, this is probably worth digging into because there's a lot of science behind the Doomsday Clock and the group that uh, manages it, which is called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. So we figured, let's do a dive into that, explain what that is, and see what's going on there. Yeah, because I feel like there is a lot of confusion, especially, and I don't mean I don't I don't mean to vilify people who say didn't read the link. Uh, didn't follow the link and read the article that we shared, uh, because I think we all have to do this. We're hit with so many different pieces of media in our streams. You just can't click on everything. I right. understand that. Uh, but it's easy without, without diving into it, it's easy to mistake what the doomsday clock is. Mm-hmm. Now, on one hand, you might think, oh, well, this is a, this is a rigorous scientific, like, um, you know, Fermi kind of a, a, a contemplation on what the chances of nuclear war are. Or you may think, oh, well, this is just completely complete political BS. This is just somebody or some group of people just ma- making some with, with political motivation deciding how dangerous the current climate is. And the answer is it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Uh, and but it's worth taking a look at because while, yes, it, it, it so let's make this very clear right from the top. The doomsday clock is not managed by any kind of like supercomputer or device that's calculating things and figuring out what the exact time on the clock should be. Yeah, do not confuse it with an actual atomic clock, right? Uh, which is a you know a highly precise um, uh, time measurement uh, system. Yeah. This is in, this is something where a human hand is essentially going to reach up and change what time it exactly. is. and it's fairly subjective, but. At the same time, the people who are in charge of making that subjective judgment call are experts in their field. And we're mm-hmm. going to go over all of that. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about uh, the group, the the journal surrounding this, the doomsday clock itself. And then we're going to look at some arguments both for and against it. Uh, so uh, just to back up here, in case you missed it, at the beginning of 2017, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists calculated that we're even closer to doomsday, and they adjusted the doomsday clock to 2.5 minutes to midnight, midnight being doomsday, meaning the human uh, population will be completely wa- wiped out by something, usually nuclear annihilation. Uh, and by their prediction, we're that much closer to the end of humanity. This is the closest the clock has been to doomsday since 1953 after the U.S. tested its first thermonuclear device. Now, why? Why, why, why did they push it forward? Well, certainly if you've, if you've been following the news enough to pick up on the doomsday story, then you've probably been following the news enough to pick up on all these various other stories. We can basically reduce a lot of it to sort of to saber rattling, to uh, the testing of new regimes, yeah. to new regimes, uh, you know, p- rolling out their stance on uh, issues of uh, of nuclear armaments, uh, 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 warfare in general, and international relations. Right. Yeah. So, you know, this is going to get a little bit political here. 
only for the purposes of us describing why they made this decision. So they cited specifically that the global security landscape darkened. This is a direct quote as the international community failed to come effectively to grips with humanity's most pressing existential threats. And by that, they mean nuclear weapons and climate change. Now, uh, this was announced in an op-ed uh, to the New York Times. There were two people, theoretical physicist Lawrence M. Krauss and retired Navy Rear Admiral David Titley. And they wrote on behalf of the Bulletin of, of uh, Atomic Scientists, and this was their quote, They said, making matters worse, the United States now has a president who has promised to impede progress on both of those fronts. Never before has the bulletin decided to advance the clock largely because of the statements of a single person. But when that person is the new president of the United States, his words matter. Now, specifically, uh, I believe they're referring to some comments that uh, that uh, the president uh, has made. Regarding the arms race, I think he said something to the effect of let there be an arms race or, you know, we'll outproduce, uh, um, you know, the, the, the competition in terms of uh, nuclear armaments. And if, uh, if you've been following the news, you know that, uh, the president will say one thing and then he may restate it later. Yeah. But this response was uh, was coming to some of the the, the spikes in the rhetoric. Yeah. And this is stuff that he said uh, on the campaign trail before he was elected, too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a there's a well-documented record of his uh, policy or at least stated policies on uh, nuclear armament and on climate change. So these are things that concerned the Bulletin of Mm -hmm. Atomic Scientists. uh, And, you know, even since they made this announcement, he's continued to say things to this effect. Um, Now. I would be remiss if I did not mention the Iron Maiden song Two Minutes to Midnight. I, because I believe, looking back at the timeline, two minutes is the is as close as we've come. It is, thankfully. yeah. And we are currently two and a half minutes to midnight. Now, uh, th- I there was a listener out there who pointed this out to me, actually. When we posted the original story, uh-huh. he shared the video for Iron Maiden's Two Minutes to Midnight. And I went, oh, of course. And... Man, this is one of those instances where I wish we could get away with playing music on the show because that song's pretty great and it's perfect uh, as like a as a theme song for this episode. But go check it out if you're unfamiliar with it and you love metal. Uh, and there's all kinds of other popular culture things that would resonate with this. Uh, one of my favorite ska- songs that isn't necessarily a, a big one is the ska band Mephiscopheles has a song called Doomsday <laughs> that is about this as well. Oh yeah, I'm not familiar with uh, Mephiscopheles. But, uh, <laughs> you know, They're a silly 1990s ska band. Okay, yeah. Well, I you know I, I already mentioned that you know that uh, I'm a big fan of so many things that came out of the uh, the late 70s, the 1980s, early 90s as well. But uh, but some of the big ones that of course come to I think come to people's mind. In addition to all the the post nuke fiction out there, uh, war games of course. Oh yeah, yeah. That's yeah. The, the classic uh, example of uh, the only way to win the game is not to play. See, this is why I think it was it had such so much impact on me. War games is the first movie I ever saw on uh, videotape. Really? Huh? Yeah, I, Betamax. My huh. parents rented a Betamax machine when I was a little kid, and the two movies they got for me were War Games and Star Wars, huh. both movies with war in the title. <laughs> well, I, I think with War Games, like this pr- probably didn't have that big a, in a, of an impact on me personally, because I don't think I ever, 
I may have never seen it in its entirety. I think it's one oh, of those yeah? films that I just later saw parts of on TV oh, okay. and got the, the general, you know, gist of it. But, but it never had the opportunity to really get its hooks into me like it did for, for other people. Yeah. I mean, uh, as I've said on the show before, I watched a lot of stuff when I was five years old that I probably shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. This was one of them. 1983. That was right when I was five years old. I saw War Games. I also watched The Shining when I was five <laughs> years old. Uh, so, you know, maybe well, that explains a lot. Well, you know, I think well, War Games, I think, makes sense for, for some younger viewers. But we, in a previous episode, the, the Butter episode, we talked yep. about the Butter Battle book. The oh, Dr. yeah. Book and subsequent uh, uh, Turner TV special that deals with uh, the arms race and deals with the idea of mutually assured destruction. So, really, no matter what your age was during during this era, there was the potential to be introduced to the the larger cultural anxiety regarding this. Yeah, it was a period that was rife with popular culture surrounded by this. And now that we're inching closer to midnight on the doomsday clock, I kind Mm -hmm. of wonder if we're going to see more stuff like this again. Uh, Time will tell. Now, you're probably wondering, who are the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists or what is this thing? Well, the Bulletin was actually founded by some of the people who worked on the Manhattan Project. These were people who felt that they could not remain aloof to the consequences of their work creating atomic weapons. Uh, and they were the people who built the atomic bomb, but then they also lobbied for its abolition. Now... Today, it's a non-profit organization, and it has an international board of experts who assess scientific advancements and the benefits and risks that they give to humanity. Now, their stated goal is to influence public policy. So let's be very clear here. Like, they state and they say very plainly on all their literature, like, yes, this is our goal is to communicate and to change policy. Uh, they describe the bulletin as such. They say it's like a doctor making a diagnosis by looking at data, considering symptoms, measurements, and circumstances, and then coming up with a judgment on how to treat a condition. And I, and I do have to throw in here that I, I don't think anyone out there sane in the world is arguing that nuclear war is a desired outcome. Right. Or, you know, even, you know, we've mentioned some of the comments that uh, the president has made. And, you know, when pressed on the matter, he has said, oh, well, nuclear weapons are horrible. You know, this is this is, you know, bad, not good. He very specifically uses the term. These are bad things. Yes. Yeah. So I don't think anybody is is arguing that that yeah let's have a nuclear war that sounds like a great idea the the arguments come into the balance and, and how do you reduce uh, etc and then into yeah. the, the 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 political uh, situations that increase the likelihood of one of these weapons being used because really we've 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 been very lucky in in the in the, in the regard that there have only been uh, you know two military uses of nuclear weapons and of course they were both. Uh, both deployed by the United States at the close of the the Second World War yeah. in Japan. Uh, outside of that, we've had you know plenty of tests. We have had some testy situations regarding their uh, their their positioning and their potential use, but we have not had to to suffer any any subsequent uses, and we haven't had to see actual nuclear warfare bet- or any war- warfare between two nuclear uh, armed nations. Right. Yeah. The idea here being 
that the buildup of these armaments will be a deterrent to various powers mm-hmm. to to either either in the course of their militaristic actions or in their own armament of nuclear weapons, right? And it's not just the United States and Russia anymore, and we'll get into that. There's all kinds mm-hmm. of factors that, that come into play. Uh, now, the bulletin is also an award-winning journal, and it puts issues and events into context uh, and provides fact-based Debates and assessments about, you know, the, that basically the end of humanity. Uh, and they have been around for 70 years. There's lots of other reports and analysis on their site. Their site is, is pretty fantastic in terms of like layout and all the contents available. Uh, and infographics too. Their infographics are really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a bi-monthly magazine. Now today, we're talking about in terms of like the people who make the decision about the doomsday clock. We're talking about 10 to 20 people who literally sit in a room for a day and do the best they can to communicate disaster to the rest of us. Now, uh, it's, it's either once or twice a year, the board's members get together and they gather for a one day discussion where they review what worried them the following year and what they anticipate as new concerns. They don't use devices or computers to calculate this. This is just experienced expert adults trying to come to a consensus. Yeah, there's no algorithm that is de- deployed here. Exactly. So you may be wondering, well, who are these people? What are they so expert at? And th- this is, you know, maybe going to be a little dry, but I want to go through the list of the current people so you have an idea of who's making this decision. Now, the the current membership of the board, it is the Science and Security Board for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Uh, and they're said to also consult widely with their colleagues across a wide variety of disciplines before they get together to make decisions about the doomsday clock. So let's go through these here. Okay, so the first is Lynn Eden. She's one of the co-chairs, uh, and she's a research scholar at Stanford University who studies military and society, science, technology, and organizations, as well as nuclear weapons history and policy. Up next, we have Robert Rosner, co-chair, professor of, of astronomy, astrophysics, and physics at the University of Chicago. There's Rod Ewing. He's a professor of nuclear security and earth sciences at Stanford University. Then there's uh, Stephen Kartha, senior scientist at Stockholm Environmental Institute, focuses on technological and policy options for addressing climate change. There's Herb Lin. Who, uh, this is a senior research scholar for cyber policy and security at Stanford University. You're seeing a trend here. There's a lot of people from Stanford there. Next is uh, Suzette McKinney, former deputy commissioner of the Bureau of Public Health, Preparedness and Emergency Response at the Chicago Department of Public Health. She's an expert in emergency preparedness efforts. Steve Miller is the director of the International Security Program at Harvard University. Up next, we have uh, Raymond T. Uh, Pierhumbert. Uh, this is professor of physics at the University of Oxford, uh, specializes in how climate works. Rama Murte Raja Raman, he's a professor of physics at Jawaharlal Nehru University. Up next, we have Jennifer Sims. She's senior fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and a consultant on intelligence and homeland security. Susan Solomon is a professor of environmental studies at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's actually one of the pioneers in the work that explains why there's a hole in the Antarctic ozone layer, and she specifically specializes in climate science. Up next, we have Richard Somerville, professor of oceanography at the University of California, and his focus is climate systems. 
Sharon Squasani, she's the director of the Proliferation Prevention Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies at Washington, D.C. She specializes in nuclear nonproliferation, arms control and security policy. And then we have uh, David Titley, professor of meteorology and international affairs at Pennsylvania State University, a former naval officer with the rank of rear admiral who uh, used to work in the Pentagon. Okay, so we've gone through that list. That is clearly a list of people who have a lot of credentials under their belt, right? It's It does not seem like a list of, I mean, I think we've got like a little over 10 people. There's probably like 12 or 13 of them here. They're not just whimsically going to say something like, we're two minutes away from the world ending, right? It right. seems like, uh yeah, maybe they have rhetorical agendas, but they are all experts in fields like uh, uh nuclear nonproliferation, military uh, climate change and, and a growing thing that they're looking at is cybersecurity. Right. And then, yeah, there's not a single celebrity or, uh, or, you know, yeah, or, Angelina or Jolie on isn't on the doomsday yeah. clock committee. Okay. Let's take a break. And when we get back, let's really dive into what the doomsday clock actually is. <laughs> All right. We're back. So. Everyone has probably seen a picture of the Doomsday Clock thus far. If nothing else, it should be the uh, the, the lead art for this episode mm. on the website uh, stufftoblowyourmind.com. But uh, but beyond that, beyond just what it looks like, what is the Doomsday Clock? Okay, so it was originally founded by, as I mentioned before, people who were involved with the Manhattan Project. And one of the bulletin's members was a nuclear physicist named Alexander Langsdorf. And his wife, Martel, she was an artist. And when they were coming up with this journal for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, she created a clock symbol. Uh, and she set it to 1153 for the cover of the group's magazine. Now, she did this, she said, because, quote, it looked good to her eye. So there was no, there was no reasoning behind why it was at 1153 on the very first issue. It's just more like, yeah, this, this feels about right. Exactly. Yeah. In 1949, however, her husband reset it four minutes later. Since then, this group has been around for 70 years and they've used the clock to draw attention to worldwide crises that they believe threaten the survival of the human species. And their focus is almost entirely on the availability of nuclear weapons and the world powers that are willing to use them. So they kind of they describe it as such. They say it's a symbol, obviously, Mm -hmm. but it's a symbolic intersection of art and science. And its goal is to get people to talk more about nuclear weapons. Basically, you know, I think I think it's easy to say this now, like uh, especially since like what we were saying with the 90s, it kind of was like, oh, the Cold War is over. Whew. I don't have to worry about that being a day to day concern. I think the, the clock itself went to something like 17 minutes. It did. Out. Yeah. Yeah. 1991 was the most optimistic position it ever was at. And it was 17 minutes to midnight. Uh, now, the clock itself has wavered between that 17 minutes and two minutes. Uh, since its inception in 1947, the time itself, like we described, is determined by this board of scientists and nuclear experts who meet regularly. But ultimately, yes, this is a political tool for communication. But here's the thing. It works. The last few times they've announced a change to the clock, it has been not only international news in that it's made, you know, headlines in every major news outlet, but it is also trended on Facebook and Twitter. So people talk about it. It works. It gets people to think about what's going on with nuclear weapons. 
Now, the hand itself has been reset 22 times. It used to be that the bulletin's editor decided when the hand should be moved, and his name was Eugene Rabinovich, and he was a scientist. Uh, but when he died in 1973, that science and security board that Robert and I just uh, went through with you, they took over, and like I said, they meet twice a year to discuss world events relating to the clock. Now, the last time it was moved before this most recent one was in 2015, uh, two minutes were taken away to express the bulletin's dissatisfaction with world progress on climate change and nuclear weapons. So they have four criteria that they currently use to d- determine the status of the clock. The first is obviously the possibility of major conflict between nuclear states. Then there is, and this is relatively new, uh, out of control climate change. The third is risks of civilian nuclear powered disaster, especially when it relates to waste storage. Okay, this this uh, tying in, of course, to um, uh, accidents such as that at uh, Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the fourth and final one is they're looking at emerging technologies like genetically modified pandemics or destructive artificial intelligence. So ultimately, their focus here is about any kind of species-wide catastrophe, no matter what its origin might be. Now, on their site, they have this thing that's called the Doomsday Dashboard. That I, I have to say, like, I, I, I think that there's like a certain amount of cheekiness to this too, right? Like, mm-hmm. may, maybe that's just me, but I like the idea of like it, it, the Doomsday Dashboard. You know, it's just kind of it feels jokey, but at the same time, it's obviously the most serious you can be about a possible topic, right? I mean, they're they're simplifying all of this into this one symbol, and in doing. Doing that, there, you know, there's the value of some of of simplistic and direct communication via symbolism, but in doing so, I mean, they they are realizing that they're boiling it down. Yeah. So this dashboard is a little different from the clock in that it accounts for the amount of global nuclear weapons, the security of nuclear materials around the world, the amount of nuclear materials that are stored, the rise in the sea level and the rise in atmospheric carbon dioxide, as well as the difference in global temperatures and the minimum amount of Arctic sea ice that we currently have. So it's this big interface that shows you all those things. Basically keeping track of all of the, 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 the modern world woes especially that came out of Pandora's box uh, right and kind of and and cared for uh, or at least uh, you know by an organization that it was at least founded by individuals who played arguably played they a role in opening the box. that box to yeah. begin with so the the thing here basically is they study events and trends they track numbers and statistics they also account for world leaders and citizen efforts to reduce these potential dangers they also recognize that nuclear energy and climate change are intertwined so they say well yeah of course some people advocate for nuclear power to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. So they recognize that there's kind of like a give and take there, mm-hmm. and they need to pay attention to that. So why are we currently at 2.5 minutes to midnight? Well, we gave you their their stated answer, you know, in their op-ed piece earlier. But uh, here's a couple of, of listed items, basically bullet items that are, are of concern to them, and, and I... I I would imagine to all of us. So the United States and Russia together possess more than 90% of the world's nuclear weapons, and we remain at odds in a variety of theaters. Now, obviously, the U.S. and Russia aren't facing off one-to-one, but examples include Syria, 
the Ukraine and the borders of NATO. Uh, there's also, you know, both of these countries continuing to modernize their forces with little arms control negotiations. So as of this recording, what was it last week? Mm-hmm. President Trump announced that there was, he was going to increase a massive amount of spending to the defense budget. So, you know, that, that's in line with this. Now, North Korea is another factor. They continue to conduct underground nuclear tests. They're giving indications that it would keep trying to develop a nuclear weapon, uh, one that has delivery capabilities. So we're talking about ICBMs here, I believe. Pakistan and India continue to threaten each other with nuclear warfare. Now, they're facing off over the line of control in Kashmir. Now, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists also adds that climate change's outlook looks somewhat less dismal than it used to, but only somewhat, they say. That's a direct quote. Uh, So 2016, warmest year on record, and 16 of the 17 warmest years on record have been recorded since 2001. So that's of concern to them. They say climate change is a risk to human health and has adverse effects on our food availability. They also include within all of this the rise of nationalism worldwide, as well as both President Trump and Vladimir Putin's comments about the use and proliferation of nuclear weapons, as well as uh, President Trump's disbelief in the scientific consensus on climate change. Uh, in fact, the U.S. is scheduled to spend between $100 billion and $1 trillion on retrofitting nuclear weapons for another four decades of service. Uh, I, I was just watching The Expanse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the show that we've talked about on, on Stuff to Blow Your Mind many times, they uh, fire a bunch of nuclear missiles into outer space at one point. Oh, yeah, and, and I, I believe that is supposed that. to represent the, if not the entirety, then at least the the, the vast majority of Earth's uh, nuclear arsenal yeah. is, is launched in that, in that scenario. Yeah, it really made me uh, think on this. Uh, okay. So the bulletin also see, you know, Trump's rhetoric as a disregard for scientific expertise. And they say, look, this is a growing problem. Here's some additional factors as well. They say the Russian cyber attack on the United States political system, the gene editing tool CRISPR. Uh, so we've talked about this on this show or in, in other How Stuff Works media. Uh, basically the idea here is that CRISPR CRISPR could possibly make it easier to produce biological weapons. And then they also listed the rise of, quote, fake news. Now, when they probably released this thing, they weren't as sick of the term fake news as the rest of us. Yeah. And uh, honestly, me personally, I'd, I'd prefer to use other terms like disinformation. But yeah, the, the term has become uh, muddy, even muddier since we first talked about it in our episode. Uh, Is social media driving me crazy? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's kind of been... It's, it's, it's kind of been co-opted. So now it is, uh, it's, um, it's an insult that is leveled at, uh, reputable news sources as well as, uh, intentionally, um, uh, confusing or, uh, inaccurate reports. Yeah. So some of you are probably listening and you're going, wow, this is really heavily weighted on the climate change thing. I'm not necessarily a believer in that, or maybe you are, but, um, but what does it have to do, you know, with nuclear annihilation? Here's where I kind of fall on this thing, which is that even outside of scientific reason, I've always thought about climate change as being similar to Pascal's wager. You know that Robert Pascal's wager, mm-hmm. um, uh, basically on the belief of God. And the idea is, you know, that as a rational person, I think if climate change does exist and we fight to stop it, 
well, we're going to experience more gains and less loss, right? But it's a probability gamble. However, I, as a science communicator, do believe in the science behind climate change. Don't get me wrong. But so to me, it's like it's similar to the belief in God and that it's 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 not about science or religion as much as like you got to think of it as like a a rewards and risks game. Right. Uh, And hey, you know what? If I take out my recycling and I'm a little bit better about my carbon footprint uh, and it's a it's a little bit of a strain on my lifestyle. Sorry. You know, I'd rather do that than uh, boil alive. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and, and just to, to drive home the important thing here, too, there is a scientific consensus that, yes, that climate absolutely. change is occurring and that, that humans um, are, are, are the, if not, if are a major factor, if not the major factor uh, in it spinning out of control. Uh, now, I'm sure those of you out there who have your doubts you i'm sure you have a, an expert or two that you whose opinions you turn to i'm sure you have uh, a list of uh, pre-prepared problems uh, with uh, with climate change but you really can't argue with the fact that this is the scientific consensus and if you are going to if you if you're going to work outside of scientific consensus then that is a, that is ultimately an illogical choice. Yeah, and so look, like the reason why I'm addressing this here is I know that this is contentious. I know that we have some listeners who are probably going to write us in about this and say I can't believe that you guys sided with this group that believes in climate change, right? And I know for a fact that when this episode goes up on Facebook that there will be dozens of comments probably about how this is all a scam. But look, we have to address it. That's what I believe. This is where we are at with scientific consensus. This is a show about how science is used in our world. And the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is a group of experts. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you have to if you. Well, what am I going to side with if it's not scientific consensus? Am I going to side with political consensus? Am right. I going to side with religious consensus? I, I really haven't seen much in the way of I've seen religious arguments for combating climate change, but I haven't seen much in the way of religious arguments that that uh, that human uh, uh, created climate change is not occurring. So I don't really think I even have an option in that direction if I chose to go that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So and 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 again, we're going to get back into this again in a later section because there is a strong argument against the bulletin of atomic scientists that will will relate to you later. Uh, I just wanted to set that up as we were talking about the climate change stuff. Now, historical events have us this close to the doomsday midnight before. In fact, in 1949, when the Soviet Union tested an atomic bomb and the nuclear arms race began, that was one time. Then also in 1984, when American-Soviet relations deteriorated and deployed, they both deployed short-range missiles around Europe. And that's, again, right around prime time for you and me as little kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in 1952, when they both tested thermonuclear hydrogen bombs, that's the only time it's ever been closer to midnight than right now. So here's some nightmare scenarios that they pitch the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists uh, that could edge us even further. Uh, One is a NATO war with Russia. Yeah, that would be horrible. Two is an American conflict with China. That would be horrible, yeah. Three is an erratic launch by North Korea, meaning their um, nuclear missiles. And we, God, it was like two or three days ago, wasn't it? They, they do this all the time. North Korea, like, erratically has some missile fly off into the ocean. Well, 
it, you can you can say erratic, but but also uh, my understanding is that uh, there are certain military operations yeah. that go on every year bet- uh, with the U.S. and South Korea, and this they always do something to sort of uh, speak out and to protest these yeah. uh, events. And this is the latest uh, of version of this. Yeah. In fact, I think I read this morning on my way into work something about. You know, China basically said like, hey, North Korea, cool your jets. United States and South Korea, can you kind of slow your roll with the military operations? You know, they're trying to be the logical ones in this. Mm-hmm. Well, at least on the face of it. All right. And another uh, horrible scenario they predict is a war between India and Pakistan. And the final one would be if ISIS was somehow nuclear enabled. So all of these are things that they see as complete nightmare scenarios that could, you know, push us even closer to midnight. The bulletin themselves also called upon Trump and Putin to use their, quote, friendly relationship to reduce nuclear weapon stocks. So I, I thought that was kind of funny, actually. I mean, given all this, you know. We joke about it. SNL is always doing some kind of gag one way or the other about Trump and Putin. But, you know. Yeah. It, it, I mean, <laughs> to take a step back from all of it, it is a bit ridiculous that, uh, that we're in this scenario where there's so much talk about these two, uh, these two, uh, uh, governmental heads being in collusion with each other. And yet the, the arms race rhetoric has uh, has increased. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's ramping. You yeah. think you think that we that, that we'd at least get the side effect of uh of of calm calmer nuclear relations, but uh, oh, we can only hope. Thus this is the world we live in. Okay, let's take another break and when we get back, we're going to introduce these arguments about whether or not we should believe in the doomsday clock or not. <laughs> All right, we're back. So, you're you're scrolling through your Facebook uh, feed and you 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 make out the uh, you know the unmistakable symbol of the uh, of the doomsday clock. Should you click on it? Should you not click on it? Should you give it a a thumbs up uh, or a smiley? Should you give it the the frowny face, mm. the angry face, or just the sad face? How should we react to it? So we've already presented to you how they come about their their decision making of of where the the hands on this clock reside, right? Uh, and you can, you know, d- judge for yourself whether or not you think that's logical. But there is an argument against it presented by a guy named Tom Nichols. Uh, he is a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. And he says that, yes, the bulletin was right to remind us of the problems with nuclear weapons during the Cold War. He says, actually, he says, look, this is a great and venerable journal, even though I don't necessarily agree with their politics. But he argues that the world today is much safer. And so he dim- dismisses the addition of climate change to the doomsday clock, and he calls it notional. He says that scientists involved in this are catering to a liberal audience and that they have concerns such as, quote, being mean to each other. So he says the clock itself means nothing. He compares where the clock was set to historical events, and he argues that we're safer now than we were in 1991, and that's when the clock was set at its best. So this is his argument. He also says the clock is, quote, simply theater, uh, and that it's designed to create a sense of urgent worry about these things that the scientists think we need to worry about. 
on this, I, I'm not going to argue with him. I, I'm sure the bulletin would, too. And they're pretty clear about saying, like, yes, this is a communication propaganda tool for us to get people to start talking about these problems. And it's it's also yeah worth pointing out that that even yeah even when uh, when the clock was at its best, you still have uh, nuclear states and there's a perceivable path to a potential nuclear conflict or a nuclear detonation that's always there just by virtue of having armed states. Yeah. Uh, I, this would be content for a later episode, but I, I was I was reading recently about uh, computing errors that have occurred here and there regarding the systems that manage uh, the, the, the the nuclear armaments on, on both sides. Yep. And, and that terrifying. alone is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I left some of those notes out, but that's absolutely true that that uh, there have been computing errors that basically said, oh, somebody just launched a bunch of missiles at us. And it was only because there was a human being there who who was able to recognize that there was a malfunction and say, no, the, the, that's not actually happening. Do not retaliate. Yeah, at, at all points, the technology is fallible and the humans involved are fallible. Yep. And you just got to hope and pray that, that they're no, not both fallible at the same time, uh, because that's when, uh, when, when uh, the clock starts moving again. But Nichols' argument is that scientists since the end of World War II have been trying to figure out how to translate their intelligence in things like chemistry and physics and earth sciences into political power. So he's basically saying that they're trying – things like the doomsday clock are an attempt at a, as a power grab by science. Uh, he argues that there are good reasons for leaders to reject scientific advice. And this is his direct quote. It's easy to be a fan of scientists running things as long as your own guys doing the sciencing. But scientists can be wrong about politics in all kinds of ways. Uh, and then it all comes down to this. He has a particular bone to pick with Leon Cooper, who is a person that's involved with the Bolton. I think he used to be on the security uh, uh, membership team. And uh, the two of them apparently had a nasty debate with each other at Brown University. So he wants the bulletin to change the clock back to being only about nuclear danger and that they should take out climate change, uh, artificial intelligence and, you know, genetic modification. Mm -hmm. Either that or he says they should just retire it in general. Um, now, I would like to point something out here. The article in which he wrote this was published in January of 2016. And within it. Even then, he said, God help us if Donald Trump is elected and controls our nuclear trigger. So he may, you know, we don't have Nichols here in the room with us, but he may have a little bit of a different answer today because of, you know, how they've adjusted the clock and he, whether or not climate change is on the board. Certainly, we're, we've edged a little bit closer in terms of nuclear armament. So. This is my counter argument on this. Okay. Uh, cause he says things like, oh, well, they're concerned about things like being mean to each other. Well, you know, Joe and I just did this two part episode where we talked about animal intelligence and we compared it to humanity. And I'm far more concerned right now about humanity's recent lack of empathy and how that's going to contribute to our moral decision-making progress. You tie that into technologies of death like nuclear weapons or genetic modification or artificial intelligence, all these things that the bulletin lists above, I'm not so dismissive of those things. 
Yeah, I mean, I would agree. All of these uh, these aspects of, uh, of of humanity are interconnected. Our technology, the way we view each other, the way we treat each other, the politics, the science, and I think it it uh, yeah it it it's it's counterproductive to want to just say like you know to to uh, to, to fall back on uh, on some of uh, the, the arguments here presented by Nichols. The idea that we should only look at at this in a political sphere, only yeah, or or, or that uh, scientists are saying they only want to uh, run things from a scientific perspective. These are all interconnected. There's 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 no avoiding that. Yeah, and the bulletin themselves address this by saying. Uh, you know, sometimes they're asked, they even have this on their FAQ page, what's worse, nuclear energy or climate change? And their quote is, at the end of the day, trying to answer the question is like standing around in a burning house arguing about whether it's better to die of smoke inhalation or from a falling timber. And I, that kind of gets back to my Pascal's wager thing is mm-hmm. that it's like, well, you know, it's a, re- it, it's a cost benefit rewards risks thing. So. Now, the bulletin themselves, they don't, uh, as far as I could find, they didn't, you know, counter argue Nichols, but they do have an argument in favor of why climate change is included in the doomsday clock. Uh, and this is written by Don Stover, and it's available on their site. Uh, she says, John Cook, who's a research fellow on climate communication at the University of Queensland's Global Change Institute, said, quote, our planet has been building up heat at the rate of about four Hiroshima bombs every second. Consider that going continuously for several decades. Then this was reformulated by a climate scientist, uh, James Hansen, who is a member of the Science and Security Board. And in 2012, Hansen said that climate change, its excess energy buildup in the Earth's ocean and other heat reservoirs was equivalent to exploding 400,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs per day, 365 days per year. Now, that sounds crazy, right? Like we all go... Come on now, like this just (laughs) even like I can go. All right. Maybe I see where Nichols is at with like thinking that this is purely rhetorical. But Don Stover does a really good job in this article of breaking down why these are important arguments. Because, yeah, on on the surface of things, I hear those stats and I think, well, you're talking about like global heat increases versus the very localized uh, um, heat output of a of a nuclear detonation. Yeah, it's kind of disingenuous to compare those two things. Yeah, exactly. But Stover says, OK, is this comparison accurate? Well, she says Hansen comparing the explosive yield and not instant maths of death of a bomb yield, well, that's measured in kilotons of TNT. You can take that and you can convert it into an equivalent number of calories for direct comparison with the Earth's rising heat content. The problem that Hansen argues is that greenhouse gases reduce the amount of Earth's heat radiation that's going out into space. So there's a temporary energy imbalance here on the planet, and they've done the math figuring out that that totals 2.6 watts per square meter of Earth's surface. 
Now, uh, Anthony Watts d- dismissed this excess energy. This is a, an, another person who argued against this and, and said, look, that's hardly a blip. Uh, it only has the power of one one hundredth of a 60 watt light bulb. And that's true. But then Stover points out the numbers are still right when you consider the cumulative imbalance over time. So their example is if you lived in a house and it had a 0.6 watt per square meter of heat energy that never left the building, it would raise the heat by 4.5 degrees per day, eventually boiling you to death in under a month. That's a pretty big Twinkie. This, this is the main thing that's <laughs> yes, it is, me. Dr. Venkman. Yeah. Uh, now, Stover says, is the comparison effective? Well, Cook argues that his pronouncement was effective since it made headlines around the world, meaning, again, look, this is a communications device. Right. Uh, since misinformation about climate change are what he calls sticky ideas, Cook wanted to fight them with stickier ideas. <laughs> Rather than speaking in complex, abstract, dry language, he wanted to advocate for simple, concrete, and basically emotional rhetoric but that was also credible. Okay, so the enough. math's there, but he also wanted to sort of condense it into something that was, I guess, as we say, with in terms of social media, would go viral. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the idea being here that if you have um, anti-climate change statements that have to, to invoke uh, Stephen Colbert's terminology, truthiness to them, like yeah. they, 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 they feel like they're they're accurate and therefore people cling to them. He's trying to create things that that both feel truthy and are truth. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's his goal here. And then finally, Stover says, well, is the comparison itself appropriate? And she argues, yes, it is. Climate change is a man-made phenomenon that is also catastrophic. And she says the atom bomb is a man-made phenomenon that is catastrophic. The goal of the bulletin is to spur people to action, and it seems to be working. Also, she says climate change does cause mass death by increasing the frequency of extreme weather events like heat waves and floods while creating conditions that make it easier for disease to thrive and crops to fail. Uh, in fact, it is already estimated that climate change kills 400,000 people annually in that respect. So I, I didn't see how she broke those numbers down, but I'm guessing what she means is that heat, you know, cumulatively heat waves, floods, uh, increases in disease and, uh, uh, I, I would imagine starvation due to crop failure amounts to that many deaths per year. So, all right. We're Robert and I are going to leave it up to you, audience. We're not going to tell you one way what to think or the other about the doomsday clock, but we've broken it down for you now. You know what the doomsday clock is. You know who the people are behind it. You know how they calculate what it is. Are we two and a half minutes to midnight? How's Iron Maiden's song sounding to us now? <laughs> I mean, in the end here, uh, regardless of how you think about it, the the, the, the clock is uh, achieving its purpose, uh, getting people to discuss it, to tease apart the issue, yeah. ask themselves, dude, are the, is what's going on in the world today making us safer? Do we feel safer? Um, and, and how concerned should we be about uh, nuclear weapons, about climate change, and about some of these uh, emerging threats uh, that, that we discussed? Uh, some of the, in a ways, more science, sci-fi threats, uh, but uh, 
but as a, but but threats that are still part of this uh, this human invention, things that we've introduced into the world by opening the the, the technological Pandora's box, if you will. Yeah. Speaking of sci-fi threats, I, I saw this shirt when I was on the airplane on the way to Seattle last mm-hmm. week that uh, made me think of all of this, and and I did not realize it, but it, it is a quote from Aliens. Ah. Uh, so I, I went and looked it up. Uh, this guy on the airplane that I was on, he was wearing a T-shirt that said Namaste. Peace through superior firepower, and the image was uh, some like a, a, a somebody meditating in a lotus position, but the person was made up of two machine guns pointing huh. upward, and so you know apparently this is a slogan that one of the soldiers, uh, I believe it's Frost in Aliens, has emblazoned on their uniform. Oh, wait, which Peace character through, is Frost? You're gonna have to remind me. I think Frost is. Uh, is Frost the other guy with the giant machine gun that's not Vasquez? Okay, okay, that one. All right. The, like, Gatling gun thing? Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, uh, Aliens fans out there are probably screaming at us <laughs> through the through the uh, uh, podcast headphones. But um, anyway, so it came from that, but then, you know, this is a shirt that this guy was wearing basically saying, uh, advocating for the same, you know, uh, nuclear proliferation idea here that it's a deterrence. If we have superior firepower, then that will create peace because no one will want to attack us. Right. Hmm. I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, and I'm an aliens fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that that shirt design reminds me of uh, the, the cover art for a, a PJ O'Rourke book that came out in 1992 called Give War a Chance. And uh, the cover art was the peace symbol, but uh, the, the the center of the peace symbol was a B-52 uh, bomber. Ah, uh, yeah. It's uh, I, I feel like, but in both both of these cases, the the, the symbol, the, the the simplification of the message, which lines up with the symbolic simplification of the the doomsday clock. I mean, th- these raise questions about. <laughs> how are we to think about uh, about nuclear arms? How are we to think about uh, about limiting uh, and, and decreasing the number of nuclear weapons out there? Because it everything is interconnected. It, it's a it's it's a it's a it's a Jenga game of yeah. uh, humanity's survival. And uh, yeah, you can say nuclear weapons are bad, but you can't just. You know, you can't just pull out the Jenga block for one nation's uh, uh, weapons and expect that to to it all be a, a reasonable response, unless everybody else is uh, is 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 coordinating co- coordinating their movements as well. Uh, it's and that's why we're a seeing tricky scenario. similar buildups in other countries, right? Like first it was the U.S. and Russia, then it was India and Pakistan. Now it's North Korea and South Korea. Like we're going to keep seeing this kind of buildup all around the world if that's going to be the logic that we use for trying to keep peace. Yeah, I mean cuz ultimately there is a there's there's a special table you get to sit at if you have access to these weapons. It gives you it, it gives you a, a a certain amount of power and a and a certain voice that you didn't have previously. Yeah. Um and my argument would be uh even if I did believe in peace through superior firepower Based on what we were talking about earlier, if there's either human miscalculation or technological miscalculation, having that much firepower possibly go wrong, it's not worth it to me. Yeah. And in Aliens, it goes it goes pretty wrong. <laughs> it does indeed. Yeah, it does indeed. Although I guess we have to blame the engineers for that or we'll find out in Alien Covenant in a couple months. <laughs> um, 
So the if you're concerned about this, if you've you heard this episode and you're you've got the doomsday clock fear, the bulletin says there's three things that you can do. The first is you can learn as much as you can about the powerful technology that can destroy our way of life. Yay, that sounds like a fun homework assignment. Uh, then you can share what you've learned, either tell people in real life or put it on social media or something. Uh, and then they say the third thing is tell your government representatives what your concerns are. So that's the doomsday clock. That's the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Let us know, do you believe this whole climate change is as bad as nuclear war thing? Should climate change be included in the Doomsday Clock's calculations? And are we really 2.5 minutes close to midnight? Or where would you estimate us on the clock? Yeah, I'd also love to hear from listeners both younger and older than us. Uh, uh, with with their personal take on what it was like to grow up mm. uh, in, in the shadow of the mushroom cloud, some of our older uh, audience members uh, may have memories even from from before the advent of nuclear weapons. Yeah, like and uh, and our younger we have listeners out there who came out of the nineties uh, or or even even later, uh, terrifyingly enough. Uh, so, so I'd be interested to hear what, what, how, what have you grown up in? What, what is, what is the environment been? What has the media been telling you? What have you been picking up from, uh, from adults in your life as well as all of the various media you consume regarding the, the, these threats to our way of life? Yeah. Should we be panicked? Uh, all the ways that you can get in touch with us. Man, there's so many social media channels these days. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And you should visit stuff to blowyourmind.com. Man, that is a good website. Uh, yeah, I'm partial to it. That's where, cause that's where you'll find all the episodes of this podcast, as well as blog posts, videos, and links out to all those social media accounts that we mentioned earlier. And then if you just want to write us directly, you can always find us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.